And they used to still, you used to be able to smoke there, which of course no one's allowed to do anymore. Anywhere, although the Dutch can still smoke pot without tobacco in the shop, but we can't smoke tobacco. Because we're not, in Scandinavia, no hotel in fucking Sweden I've been to in the last year. No, it's all non-smoking. No, 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 because it's a secondary smoke, isn't it? It's a secondary smoke. Yeah, it's, it's what we should be worried about. It's very... <laughs> You know, because you know, scientists, experts, and researchers have done you know research and discovered that secondary smoke is a very big issue for me. I think about the future of the human race and what's happening in the world today. Secondary smoke's a real issue for me. <laughs> secondary smoke. I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about the fact that recently the two most powerful nations illegally invaded a Middle East country under false pretenses so that it could steal their natural resources and implement permanent military bases to start more theatres of conflict so that it could implement a third world war to create a planetary fascist police state. It's secondary smoke that is it's a real problem for me. You know. Because, but you know, sometimes when you go out, your clothes get smelly, don't they? And then you have... Then you have to wash them when you get back. <laughs> I mean, that's a real chore for my existence, you know. I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the fact that the World Bank or the IMF go into third world countries, put them into unfathomable debt, so I can steal their natural resources, destroy the culture, and implement them into the global banking system. It's secondary smoke. <laughs> that's. Cause it's everywhere, and you know, I didn't choose to smoke, and I could be affected. <laughs> really. People from Chernobyl still alive for fuck's sake. <laughs> they look weird, but they're still here. And now we make them smoke outside. <laughs> Welcome back. I um, that was Steve Hughes, the comic relief from Australia. That might have been ten years old, but I actually think that bit. I'm going to use that as a theme uh, today to try and describe this journey. I feel like we've been led on towards the ridiculous levels of the nanny state. I want to focus on a lot of I, I, since uh, the last podcast. I've had. Definitely many more uplifting experiences and content that I've been exposed to than than otherwise. <laughs> so I won't get, but I, so I want to share with some of these leaders and some of these channels, and hope and hope that you find value in them as well. And then I want to go through this journey uh, towards the nanny state as I've experienced it in my life, and then and then what I almost accidentally experienced this week with what I think are some remedies for snapping ourselves out of this. Well, firstly, I had a uh, webinar. There's just these tribes that I've been fortunate enough to stumble onto. I've shared some of them in the past, but one of them is Kim and Ole. uh, They're in Spain, but they're Danish and Swedish. They decided to gather their tribe because they've been doing every two or three days these broadcasts from their couch with their cat in uh, Spain. And it's just been generally positive. I mean, it's, it's just has built a community around them. And they 
because partly because of Ole's work, and they have both done a lot of spiritual work, uh, Eastern spirituality, they have had a really good attitude through all this. And so eventually they got kind of hungry for a tribal connection and they were wanted to offer the rest of us the chance to, to connect. So they will put that recording up. Um, his website's called Light on Con Conspiracies and her uh, YouTube is called Kim's Illusion. It was just a really nice uh, connection of like minds all over the world. It might have been up to 100 people on that Zoom call for maybe two hours. I don't know how the recording will come, come off. But it's definitely been a nice, resonant community to check in with regularly. Uh, Ole had some pearls of wisdom, but I'll, I'll, I'll save those for the end. Um, the other one was Culture Wars magazine. I've talked a lot about E. Michael Jones. This has kind of been his pla primary platform since uh, he left academia. I subscribed maybe a few months ago, but this is the first time I opened an issue and started reading it. And it was such a nice... A nostalgic connection to a community the way we used to do it you know with the news it used to be the newspaper but this is like a, a very professionally done newsletter with letters to the editor the caliber of the writing is off the charts in my opinion and it again it felt like I'm connecting with these like minds of people that care deeply and have thought deeply and experienced deeply a lot of these different dynamics happening I would I if if you are hungry for that kind of a connection, uh, Culture Wars magazine. It's a very low cost. I uh, can't remember the price, maybe $4 an issue, something like that. And then I have to take a little bit back from a previous episode. Uh, I slagged a little bit on Brian Rose because he's just, when I saw him come on the air, he's just so slick. And it was just, I felt kind of bombarded by this new channel with ads and things in the in the channels I was going to, I guess their their website optimization people are so good, they were reaching their market. But I just found it a bit too schmaltzy. And then I was so impressed with him, and I have said that when the way he handled the Ike series that they've done, and he's an outstanding interviewer. But I listened to Brian Rose on the J.P. Sears podcast. And J.P. Sears is also an impressive guy. He's not just a sarcastic comedian, although that he's really great at that. He now has a podcast, and he's a good interviewer. When he had Brian Rose on, I finally kind of got to see the inside of Brian Rose a little bit, and I was really impressed that he's very aware of the transformational journey he's on and sort of his calling on this. And so that brought me back, and plus Bobby Kennedy, that got me looking into him and uh, Del Bigtree. So I kind of fell into the Vax history, which Del Bigtree makes a very strong argument that that is the issue because, you know, I've been talking a lot about different types of ways of thinking about freedom and defending your sovereignty and those kinds of things. He made the point well that, you know, if they've got some kind of a Vax passport and you can't do anything without it, that's, that's our number one issue. <laughs> so there, these guys have been on the program, Bobby and Dell, it feels like at least 10 years. And so it's so nice to find people that have, that have been leading and they've got systems and communities and they've got plans of attack for defending and those kinds of things. So that brought me on to the London Real Channel where I've now found maybe 10 episodes of the, almost of the David Icke quality caliber 
so I, anyway, I, I recommend that channel. I, they're not all, to me, they're not all, all of his guests aren't all enlightened, let's say, <laughs> or uh, enlightening. That's a better way to put it. But it's a treasure trove and it's free. You just have to register your email. So I would uh, highly recommend browsing the London Real list of shows. And I, last night I watched this documentary called Reconnect, which was about an ayahuasca, ayahuasca journey. And I know there's mixed views on that. I found it very powerful in terms of his experience because he, you can see him transforming from that time to now and the quality that he's bringing forward. And I think, I think he's a really great example, but he just committed to a principle. He, had, he was raised with a principle, and that was free speech. And that's what he led the Ike series with, that he's committed to, to uh, enabling and free speech. And then you can tell through his interview style that he believes in Logos. He believes in pursuing transcendence through reason dialogue. And when you put those two things together, that's, that's taking him and his whole channel on this transformational journey, those, just those two things. So it's a principle and a process, basically. And that, that's powerful too, and very, very hopeful. So I will list some of my favorite interviews that I have caught up with on his site. And I'm going to finish with Dr. David E. Martin. He's the Vax patent guy. He, he's an expert. He has nothing to do with vaccinations uh, originally, but he became an ex, he's an expert in uh, mnemonics. And he built a database that can search the patent database. And that's how he stumbled into the Vax world. That's how I understood it. But uh, he's like my Elliot Ness of the week, I'd say. He's got really, really powerful arguments for how they can take the forces that be down on this issue. And I'll finish with some of what I think his highest or his strongest points were uh, on with Brian Rose. The, another guy I just got into yesterday was Dorian Yates. I couldn't believe how impressive he was. He's a bodybuilder from the UK. He's also living in Spain. I think he might be friends with Ole and Kim. He is on it. He is, and, but what I like about his best guests, Brian's best guests, they seem, a lot of them, seem to be really strongly in their masculinity, in, in the best uh, sense of the word. And that's what I got from Dorian Yates. He's just, he knows who he is, and he's got a really gentle humanity, and uh, he's, he red-pilled, he must have red-pilled 10 years ago, but he saw this whole thing um, happening and saw through it and he's he's very very uh, simple language but he just cuts through it so I was really impressed with that that interview James Lindsay he's um, an expert he's he said he's one of the very few cases that has been raised in the schooling of social justice warriors or postmodern postmodern modernism and saw through it so he's a, a fantastic exponent for helping us understand the mania around the BLM and the Antifa and the riots and the thinking that is behind it. Not that he had any magic bullets. I've seen him on Rogan and um, and other venues, but he I found him extremely informative on that on that aspect. Mickey Willis, the filmmaker for Plandemic 2, he was also excellent. So that's another way that I got I stumbled into this uh, channel. But I started following him around. I can't remember why. I guess maybe he was on J.P. Sears. I was so impressed. I went and found him in a couple other places. And 
so in the film, I don't know, I just, I guess it's all brainwashing, but in the, in his actual film, I was finding myself resisting him, you know, like I just coming up with reasons why I think he's not genuine. And then, uh, listen to him on JP Sears and then with Brian Rose and very, very impressive guy. And he, he ejected himself from Hollywood, what seems like a very successful Hollywood career years ago. And now he, so if you put these characters together, Mickey Willis, Dr. Martin, Brian Rose, Bobby Kennedy, Del Bigtree, if you put them all together, these are guys doing the right thing at all costs. They're not, even though some of them look like they're just, you know, commercially successful, that's what they look like now. But uh, that's not, that, that they got there because they're following the, the following principles that we all believe in and value. So I found that whole community of leaders and speakers extremely uplifting, let's say. Now, this journey that I have experienced in my lifetime, and I think most of you have had some version of it, I can't explain why it irked me so much. I guess maybe I just had a sense that something wasn't quite right on some of these issues. But I'm looking at it differently now, at how it's just been getting amped up. And I think also maybe because I have been outside of my home country, that helps you see the culture you're in and the culture you came from in, in a more objective way, I think. I, I think that's the, another way that, that, that I've been able to step outside of it somewhat. Anyway, here's, here's how I have experienced this journey towards nanny state. When I was like eight years old, I would be spending summers on the farm with my cousins on Prince Edward Island. And then I would go back to school in Ontario for September. And around that time, Ontario was introducing seatbelt rules. So I would go back to Ontario and I'm like, what is all this nonsense about, you know? Like, first of all, kids rolling around on a school bus with no, no seatbelts and we're riding around on motorcycles in the, in the farm. We're riding around the trucks in the farm. I'm even, you know, able to steer sometimes, these kinds of things. And then, you know, you've got these billboards and rules and all these things coming out about uh, seatbelts. And so it's some kind of a mentality. I don't know, maybe somebody can help me frame it a little bit better, but it's like wanting to enforce sameness. I think what happened, this is what I think roughly, loosely, but events like, and I can't even speak to the Depression, Great Depression or the Second World War, but events like Vietnam and Kennedy traumatized the culture to the point that they it interfered with with reason dialogue between between within the community. It started to interfere. Let's put it that way. Then some issue comes out of left field. Seatbelts. For some reason, it it is able to draw on this idea that. I want to enforce my perspective on this issue on you, okay? So I think it's sort of like making, if I'm a, say I'm a pro seatbelt enforcer, so I've got some fears and insecurities, okay, about whatever, driving at high speeds or whatever, driving in the city. And then my neighbor doesn't believe in it, okay? He was raised on a farm, whatever doesn't believe in, and I see him driving without. There's something about my insecurities. I now want to make that person have the same level of insecurities about the risk 
and have the same perspective on the risk as I do. And so I want to call in a third party to enforce that because I can't go over there and talk this through with this person. <laughs> so, so it's this enforcing of sameness and then you're inviting the nanny state in. And I think, okay, I'm going to, I'm uh, near the end. I'm going to talk about this framework, but it, this applies here too. There's a triangle that we somehow have it to me. This is a big part of the matrix, this psychology and my friend, uh, Nathan Martin at Divine Pollination is the one that helped bring this to my attention. And the triangle is perpetrator, victim, savior. Okay, those are the three corners of the triangle. And so I'm afraid. I've got anxieties or insecurities. Okay, so when I hear about the seatbelt thing, I want to follow it to the letter, maybe even more so. Okay. So that makes me kind of a little bit of a victim mentality. I'm weak and vulnerable. Okay. That's kind of my psychology. Now my neighbor doesn't care about this. So that in my mind makes that person the perpetrator. These are the people that we have to worry about. These non seatbelt wearers. And then I want to invite in the savior on the white horse to come and enforce sameness. Make my neighbor view this issue the same as me and make them behave the same, have the same risk tolerance as well. So there's two aspects to it. Have the same perspective on it and live your life with the same risk tolerance as I. So I need to invite the savior in to enforce that. And to me, this is the triangle that's got us trapped in this thinking. So the, the issue, the journey of the issues from then, I mean, secondhand smoke was one and I, and I never saw this whole pattern. I just knew when these issues were bothering me <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of them, when they came out, I was a fan, I was on board. I got convinced for a while. And then now that I look back and I can see them all underage drinking was another one. You know, you look at France and Italy and they're, they're so casual about it and they're very mature about how they handle uh, bringing kids along with alcohol and uh, meals on Sunday and that kind of thing. So underage drinking, this is, uh, this is my experience was Ontario. Drinking in public, so these things became like, oh, you got to invite the police in to enforce this. Instead of just collaborating with each other as fellow community members, let's just agree, you know, you've, you're stepping into my experience of freedom here, so let's just agree, you know, no, we had to invite the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police or the RCMP or the local police or whatever to, to enforce and then these campaigns. Um, drinking and driving, I know that that's the one that sort of you can almost see it, but it's definitely gone overboard. I know it's uh, there are, there, there's plenty of evidence that there's uh, recklessness there. But if you imagine a community up in the Arctic Circle, it's a one bar town anybody is misbehaving the community can just govern themselves they can have a word or deal with that person if they're actually reckless you know you don't have to be inviting the government and the police in on every single issue and in, in these campaigns so i was 14 15 16 before drinking and driving became a huge campaign and i realized the liability and the danger there but we definitely have taken that one too far, in my opinion. That's another one of the excuses to invite the police further into your life. Stranger danger. That's one that really drove us crazy as parents. In my experience, the people that were most, well, terrified of that. For one thing, Canada gets all the TV and all the advertising and all the news 
from the U.S. I mean, that spills over. And so we have this image that it's such a huge problem, regardless of what's actually happening in our own community, for one thing. For another thing, you know, usually harm to kids comes from people they know. They're authority figures in their life or they're somewhere in the family. That's usually the case. And the experience of this stranger danger thing, I mean, people were putting a, an amalgamation of the scariest combination of like Hannibal Lecter meets like Kevin Spacey, you know, like pedophile serial killer waiting around the corner everywhere. You know, that was the that was the psychology, which that combination, I mean, I know these are terrible, tragic crimes that do happen in society, but that combination doesn't happen, you know? It's just an example of how it went. It, it turned into a phobia, and then you would be at the shopper's drug mart or wherever, and your child would be 20 feet away playing with a toy while you're looking at the whatever, the thermometers, and somebody that's uncomfortable with that distance, even though you can see and hear your child, they freak out on you, okay? So there's another example of the, the understanding of the issue. One, is it based in reality or is it a campaign? That's one. Two, people have different risk tolerances. Why can't I accept that somebody else has a different risk tolerance with seatbelts or silken secondhand smoke? Let them be free. Let them choose their journey on the level of risk they want to choose and their understanding of what the issue is. And so that's inviting the savior back into that back, back into that matrix. And I think this is how we've slowly, gradually gotten to the insanity. Here's a couple other ones. Baby seats. That's been that, that's been a crazy experience with me, how, how crazy that got. And I think it's because, and we joke about it, you know, on social networks sometimes, but like we had the station wagon with the dog and the kids rolling around in the back or the pickup truck. I mean, here, even in Africa, they got kids rolling around in tuk-tuks with their dad. No issues. And then somehow they turn... 25 and they're a taxi driver and you, the second you get in the car, seatbelt, you know what I mean? It's just this urge to police sameness. I guess that's what it comes down to. And it's so, uh, it's, it's anti-human, I guess. It's anti-freedom when it gets too far. And I know they've got police and these guys are worried about tickets and these things, but it's happening in an irrational way, losing sense. They just take the ad or the promotion, the campaign, and then wanting to enforce it. Like, here's another way I can kind of enforce my insecurities on another person. Then political correct language. That was kind of nice briefly when I was, you know, it was getting a bit crazy in Canada. And then I went traveling and in Asia, especially Australia, you know, they hadn't arrived yet. It was so refreshing, but it arrived like five years later. Um, and then recycling. Recycling, I'm sorry, that that whole thing has been just insane. That My experience of recycling, every time I went back to Canada in the summer, it's like the rules became more convoluted and the neighbors are policing each other more on like checking and see if they're filtering and <laughs> categorizing their and the right days and the days are shifting all the time. It's the same thing with political correct language. It's constantly shifting. So you're getting all this pressure to comply to something that's constantly changing and confusing. It's like so insane. And, you know, if you just blindly want to be a good citizen, you'll go crazy. You'll go crazy. You got to like draw your line of what makes what makes sense for you. Here's just a funny little aside on that. When I was corporate community in Saudi, I'm quite sure. I mean, one of the Filipino maids suggested that they were only doing recycling to let the Western women stop complaining. 
But when they came and picked up the recycling, it all went in the same truck and it all went to the same incinerator and the same <laughs> dump. It was just humoring, you know, the, peop- the Karens, basically. <laughs> and then the, la- the last one before this pandemic was gender pronouns. And I'm a bit embarrassed how, f- how much I know about that topic, but it's because it, it became Peterson's sort of flagship topic to catapult him into fame. And, and I just... But I, we had pre- like the intellectual dark web was talking about gender pronouns, the brightest minds on the planet with the leading technology talking about gender pronouns for 18 months, you know, before the world gets taken over by a panic. Anyway, that was the latest one. And now, and now your neighbor sneezes, you call the cops. Your neighbor walks the dog in the park, you call the cops. You know, like now we've just gone. So when I was traveling in early 2000s in Cambodia, the drivers, the, the tour people, they they actually still remembered. They must have been young kids when the thing happened, when the whole Pol Pot and Khmer Rouge thing happened. But they tried to describe what they found the worst aspect of the whole thing. They weren't talking about the killing fields, although I'm sure that was... But it was the distrust between the neighbors. They said that was the worst part. You couldn't trust your relatives, you couldn't trust your neighbors. Everybody was ratting everybody out. And I could not comprehend that culture when the guy explained it to me. And then I was reading a guidebook. Well, there was torture chambers in the school. I mean, they converted a school to a torture chamber, and that was like only with chicken wire. So the school was quite nicely built for for cells and holding and tortures. But but I'm reading about Pol Pot, and the guy was a graduate of Sorbonne, or I think it was it was a French intellectual school. And I'm like, how does that happen? How does <laughs> anyway? Now you know this whole uh, Foucault and this whole journey. Now it's all making sense, and now I can see that how they get people ratting out their neighbors, wanting to enforce sameness, and that's really now I understand. <laughs> I understand the whole Bolshevism. I mean, I understand uh, the journey that those cultures must have been on. I'm getting a taste of it. Let's put it that way. I have no idea what gulags in Siberia could be would be like. So I, I'm not trying to bring everybody down. I'm trying to be mostly positive, and I want to try and just share. I, I've actually traveled to a major center this week, and I've so I've experienced some of these masked people for the first time in months. And uh, not that this place buys into it where I am, but they're kind of humoring the tourists. And so I'm kind of getting a gist of how this is happening. Um, and people are hiding. I mean, they don't believe in it. If you ask them, they don't believe in it. Their, their president does, doesn't believe in it. It's been disproven. But they still sort of like hiding behind their masks, you know, and offering gloves and offering uh, toxic chemicals. And so it's just, a, it, it, to me, it, it's this excuse card. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a victim card. It's a victim card to check out of your life. Oh, good. I was worried I was going to have to take risks and take chances and, you know, how to lead a career and own my life no i can now check out because i've got this victim card because i lived through the you know Uh, sorry i don't mean to be breaking everybody down but i think i do i think i did on this trip i think i did experience the energy that could propel us out of this ole damagard had had one analogy that worked in two different ways so let me share that first and then i'll uh, share this uh, energetic experience i had and then I'll finish off with Dr. Uh, Dr. E. Martin, David E. Martin with the, his best points 
from the London Real interview. But Ole's analogy that really works for me is it's like a dam. If you if you imagine Hoover Dam, this massive dam, that's what the the controller the controller systems have got us into. So energetically we're stagnant. We're behind this giant wall that's containing our energy. And we've been slowly experiencing, you know, running up to this wall and now we can Many of us are at the front of the wall. We can feel it. And we know what's wrong. And in his case, but we don't know what's on the other side of the wall. We don't know exactly. We've never been in a state where our spiritual and emotional energies are flowing freely because we're just, the matrix we've been raised in has been just invisible to us. So we don't even know what it really would feel like to be on the other side of that wall. But the other aspect that I liked that he uh, used was, so he realized this years ago, and decided that what he could do is laser focus. Just point his laser on one spot on that wall and just rhythmically hammer on it, you know? So he can put a chink in the armor, if you will. Um, that's at his part of it all. So that if there's like thousands of Olays doing that, that's, that's how the thing is gonna come down. And that's what I think these Elliot Nesses that I listed earlier they're all doing they're all doing something similar in, in different fields. So I thought that was extremely hopeful. Let me just tell you how I experienced this energetic lift where I've really felt like rising above this dynamic, this victim perpetrator savior mentality is just it's right there. I think uh, I think I touched it on this trip. The first one is this I think I mentioned this tip I had earlier is this 110% acceptance. So uh, Jocko Wolinek has this expression about extreme accountability. This is extreme acceptance and extreme responsibility. So not only are you accepting the gap, okay, that person is seeing this whole situation differently. They've got a different fear tolerance. They've got a different risk tolerance. They've got a different view of these issues. I have to accept that person 110% to be able to, to take some responsibility for the next moment from a, a very empowered power of now, if you will, <laughs> a power of the moment. I think that is the mentality that helps you rise above that, that victim perpetrator, uh, savior dynamic. And part of that is this Hopi poem I'll share on the page, but this Hopi poem that ends with we're the ones we've been waiting for. I think anybody that's finding their themselves to this channel, I think we've got a leadership role. I, obviously, it's different for everybody, but I think the more I see these guys that have taken up the mantle at least 10 years ago, I mean, I think anyone that's feeling themselves bumping up against the wall of that dam, it's time to get out the hammer and chisel and pick, pick your spot, basically. I believe that's the case. And then the other metaphor that was used a lot in uh, the London Rail channel was a birth canal. So that we're about to be birthed and it's messy, you know, and it's chaotic and it feels like death, you know, to the baby coming out. It feels like death of everything they, they know. But then, of course, it's a new birth of a whole new energy on the other side. And it's just a matter of, to me, it's just a matter of how much time that takes. Are we talking about a couple of weeks? Are we talking about a couple of months? How's that? And different people are making different estimates. But, I, but the fact is, it's probably up to us. And it could happen in an instant. And I think definitely versions of it are happening. There are cracks in this damn wall um, showing all over the place. 
So I, I don't, it, there's no reason it couldn't take two weeks to snap, to snap some nice big breaks in this wall in, in my experience. And so when you rise above, and so that 110, so the way I felt it energetically was exactly how I described earlier in an earlier podcast, uh, when you're commuting with an oak tree or a baobab tree or what have you, and you've got no label, you're just there energetically with that other being. And you're not trying to explain it to somebody. Or you're not trying to use language to come between. It's just an energetic communing. You're present with that. And to me, that's how the 110% acceptance was feeling. I've, I just connected to the humanity of these other people, even though they were seeing the whole situation differently. It was an energetic connection that really felt outside of that, that triangle matrix that I was explaining. So I, I just think it's just beyond reach. And I don't know. I know there's a lot of people that think that evolving is, you know, telepathy is actually going to be a thing. I don't know for sure, but it sure feels like that. It feels like right now, I think of a friend, they send me a message. Like It just feels like the energies around uh, nonverbal energetic communications are, are opening uh, big time. So Mike Emery, I had a video years ago, a couple years ago, uh, Mike Emery, a physicist, you know, he was he was sort of espousing the the value of of getting beyond language, which is really difficult. I know it's a little bit out there to imagine, but then you get you know deception and lies just goes away. You're just energetically present with one another. But anyway, that's uh, that's a bit out there. But uh, uh, why not? <laughs> Who knows what's on the other side of that wall? So that's it. I'll leave it off with David E. Martin, I, uh, Dr. David E. Martin. I uh, this we're almost up to a year. We're almost up to season one complete of the podcast, so I might do a bit of a makeover uh, in October when I get my new system and my new toys. So look for that, and I hope you find uh, these uh, as up as uh, hopeful, these wise words as I have. All right, take care. We'll talk to you in a week. Google and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. And it is the 7th of September, and I am sitting at my desk where I have had an amazing day. Actually, amazing couple days. Incredible day. Incredible day. Um, but I want to just start off by saying that Mickey Willis and Eric Felderhoff and the entire team, Nate and others at Elevate, um, have done an amazing job, haven't they, of just mm. getting um, what started off to be an interesting project that, you know, just I sit there and I just said on, on the interview with Brian Rose, if you go back and you think about March when we started these things, um, if I would have known that I would have had 500,000 people around the world in a couple of hours watching a two-hour and whatever it was, 15, 20-minute mm. interview with with um, with Brian Rose on London Real. It's supposed to be an hour, um, and it was that cool. I just would not have imagined that in my wildest dreams, and that's because of all of you. Yeah. Every single one of you who is listening to me right now, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And most of all, my amazing 
co-conspirator <laughs> in the relentless pursuit Shoot. of the Justice League of the Universe. Absolutely. Uncovering the unsavories. Unsavories. Um, <laughs> Kim, man, what a ride this has been. It's been amazing. Um, it was just incredible, this, yeah, the London Real interview. And if you haven't had a chance to look at it yet, it was phenomenal. It exposes so much more, um, makes sense out of a lot more things. Um Brian was just blown away. I, he probably, his head's spinning going, oh, my goodness, there's so much more in this. And, yeah, a lot's happening. Um, you can have a spring in your step because the forces of the one percenters and the, those that are fighting for humanity are actually making a difference. And as David said, it is because of all of us. We're all a team together, and this just happens to be a skill set we have, and everyone's doing the best that they can, and we're proud of every one of you, and I'm just so super proud Ben Swan has done an amazing job on Truth and Media. Um, make sure That's that you have a look too. at Ben's uh, post. Um, ben and I did an interview on the Moderna situation, which obviously was a significant part of the conversation that Brian Rose and I had today. But really important in that conversation is this bizarre March 28th document where, for some reason, um, Moderna decided to add into their patent application, and I'm quoting directly from their patent application, because of a concern for re-emergence or a deliberate release of SARS coronavirus, vaccine development was initiated, and that was written on March the 28th, 2019. Let's try to sit in an equanimical space of neutrality. Let's try to sit in a space that says, Maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe, maybe the CDC in 2003, when they patented SARS coronavirus and patented the genome of SARS coronavirus in the 852 patent, and when they lied to the public about that, when they said that they were doing it to make sure that no one could commercially exploit it, despite the fact that it took them four years to overrule the patent office when the patent office said that they couldn't get the patent it took them four years to protest and ultimately prevail upon the patent office to issue the patent on the genome so let's pretend like the opening lie didn't mm -hmm. happen then let's pretend that in 2005 ralph Berg didn't make the presentation he did to darpa let's pretend that by 2006 and 2007 companies like sequoia and others weren't funded to make variations of coronavirus and vaccine candidates for various types of coronavirus. Let's let's assume that those were not acquired by companies like Johnson and Johnson and and AstraZeneca and others. Let's make all of those assumptions. Let's make the assumption that even if we get up to 2015 and 16 when the National Institutes of Health said that the public was not going to support this research, what on earth do you think justifies the Biosafety Committee at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to override the U.S. government's official position that says you're not supposed to do this. What is it about the Tar Heels? What is it about the University of North Carolina? What is it about North Carolina that somehow has a moral superiority mm, that says that despite the on-record position of the government that says this is unethical, an institutional review committee at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill goes, yeah, we approve. 
something that sounds pretty innocent and pretty innocuous, like the synthetic construction of chimeric, mutant, and full-length Wuhan Institute of Virology coronavirus. And I'm going to close with one little piece of news. Ready for this? Yes. Go. I had a great conversation at the end of last week. I had a wonderful lady from the Financial Times reach out to me, and we spent two hours on a phone conversation, which was absolutely, genuinely beautiful. It was with a person who was very clearly um, skeptical, very clearly not, um, not in a position to just take things at face value. Um, she had a lot of good questions. But after all of the craziness of the fact checkers who were too cowardly to actually engage us after pandemic. Mm. But this woman from the Financial Times spent two hours and we had a beautiful, constructive, wonderful interview. And I want to be very clear on the fact I criticize a lot of things and I criticize mainstream media quite a bit. But after two hours, I have to say that though we may not have come to an agreement on everything, we found so much common ground on agreeing about our humanity, our shared perspective for the truth, our shared perspective to get facts in the hands of the public, yeah. that I have to say that Financial Times is getting a shout out right now because at least one of the people in that stood ecosystem up stood up, took the challenge, had the conversation, and in the final analysis, I think both of us found our path to a more informed and respectful humanity, and I am very grateful. So, um, well done, yeah. and that's how we're going to end.